And welcome to The Green Canary, the environment news podcast where we bring you the latest on everything to do with the environment, climate, energy and the politics around it all. I'm Elfie Scott, I'm a journalist, a writer and I hope you're having a lovely holiday break. I'm sitting across from the wonderful Aunt Sharwood as always. Does that mean I'm wonderful as always or as always you're sitting opposite the wonderful me? Doesn't matter. I'm Aunt. I'm a journo. <laughs> I'm an author. Sometimes I'm wonderful, sometimes not so much. If you're listening to this now, please send jelly snakes because I'm in the middle of the Jagungal wilderness in the middle end of uh, Kosciuszko National Park. Uh, so that's... I'm sending you my prayers, Ant. Thank you so much. Thank you. So what have we got today, Elfie? It's a different summary podcast, isn't it? It is. So today we've got a bit of a different show from the usual breakdown of the news for you. As all of us on the East Coast are probably already aware, we are well and truly in a La Nina weather phase, which generally means warmer than average sea surface temperatures near Australia. And that, in turn, causes more moisture... Uh, what would we say? Like more wet air. I I want to say wet air, but that sounds weird. Moisture laden, they say in meteorology. Oh, moisture laden. I'm going to go with wet air. Scientists, don't tell me what to say. Okay. And that's flowing towards Australia right now. So that's why it's been a wet late spring and a very wet summer so far. And that's probably not going to ease up anytime soon, which sucks because I will be in Jervis Bay by the time that this is being recorded. <laughs> but, Ant, can you tell me what being in this period actually means? Well, what it means is, is as, as you said well there. Uh, there's there's all this moist air flowing towards Australia. It means a lot of rain in a word. Um, look, in November, there are a lot of places in Southeast Australia that had their wettest Novembers on record. Uh, Canberra was, was one such place. Um, yeah, wow. And you know, the Murrumbidgee River flows past Canberra, so all the rivers were absolutely up. I grew up swimming in the Murrumbidgee. I love the Murrumbidgee River. Um, and you know, the, the Lachlan River, all of those rivers of sort of southern and central New South Wales Look, there was some terrible damage in some towns. There was some flood damage. It was bad news. But all of this water that flowed in these rivers was very, very good news for the health of the rivers and for the health of the animals and the plants that depend on the rivers, especially down in the wetlands. Now, now I don't know if you know, I really want to set this scene, Elfie. But, I'm listening. Okay. Give me give me the atmosphere. Give me the noise. It's well, what's we all here. know that Australia's longest river is the Murray. And I wonder how long till it gets an Indigenous name because we spoke about the Macquarie River recently, didn't we? Oh, that yeah, in, in New South Wales yeah. that is, is, is... The is Womble. The Womble, as it's going to be called. Um, I wonder how long the Murray will be the Murray for. Different, separate story. We all know the Murray is Australia's longest river. The Murrumbidgee is second. Not many people know that. The Darling is third and the Lachlan is fourth. So we are talking about the second and fourth longest rivers in Australia. The Murrumbidgee and the Lachlan, both of them about 1,400 kilometres, extremely significant rivers, having the best flood in years. Thanks, La Nina. Now, what's happening to all that water, Elfie? It is flowing downstream into the wetlands at the end of those rivers just before they meet the Murray. And these rivers don't really flow. The Lachlan flows into the Murrumbidgee and the Murrumbidgee flows into the Murray, but they don't really flow into They sort of just die and, and peter out in the wetlands. And those wetlands are usually marshy, swampy places, few birds, bit of this, bit of that. But right now they are singing, they are humming. It is an absolute good news story and I'm thrilled about it. Yeah, amazing. I mean, La Nina, not great for my beach holiday, but yeah. great for the wetlands, apparently. Exactly. And and I know that your attention was caught recently by a series of tweets from an ecologist called Matt Herring. And 
Matt was out capturing the sights and sounds of the wetland of Yanga National Park in western New South Wales. And I know that he's an ecologist who leads a biodiversity research, education and conservation consultancy called Murray Wildlife. And I know that because, Ant, you wrote that down in the notes that I'm reading right now. You're reading them so well. Thank you so much. So few people understand the ecology of the uh, the Murray-Darling Basin better than Matt does and I know that you spoke to him about his work this week so let's pick up part of your interview with him and hear about the wetlands. G'day Ant, um, look I have the privilege of surveying wetlands and um, other habitats uh, all around the Murray-Darling Basin and I've, I've had this, uh, this great job for about 20 years and over over that time, I've enjoyed a few seasons just like this one, where I say, "So many wetlands, so little time." <laughs> so tell us about this season. Um, it's been a wonderful season. I, you know, I can see that just from your social media feed on on Twitter and beyond. Um, with the La Nina, we've had so much rain, so much flooding, and that's been bad news in certain places where the floods have caused damage. But downstream in the wetlands, it's good news, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, Ant. It's a, it's a time for renewal, and uh, there's lots of water bird uh, and frog and, and other animal breeding just as we speak. I'm, I'm just back from a trip uh, around Balranald and in that region with Oxley and Maud where uh, the Lachlan River meets the Murrumbidgee. And I had the, uh, the privilege of going deep into parts of Yanga National Park and onto private properties that surround that area. And yeah, I've just been blown away, Ant. There are literally thousands upon thousands of water birds breeding from great crested grebes to little egrets and black swans and great cormorants, the list goes on. It's just a, a spectacular um, uh, season. That's fantastic. And just tell, tell me and, and, and the listeners, um, where do these water birds come from? I know some are migratory, uh, but how do they know the water is there and, and where have some of them come from? It's good. It's a good question. And we're, we're just starting to get a, a handle on on that, there's a great um, satellite uh, tracking program with CSIRO led by um, Heather McGuinness, and she's been focusing on ibis and spoonbills, and they can go as far as North Queensland um, during the off times, and and they come back. I mean, look, there's some talk of species like pelicans sending out scouts, um, but you just got to remember these these. Birds, they, they don't live in houses like we do. They're constantly out there um, assessing the landscape and they have a, a pretty incredible mental map of, um, of where different uh, wetlands are and, and you know, where, which ones might be um, suitable at, at certain times. And so that knowledge is passed on from generation to generation um, when younger birds are led by older ones. And there's also this innate, like, genetic navigation. They just have this hardwired um, knowledge of where to go that we're still, we're still kind of um, getting a handle on that. 
so obviously the the, the how is not uh, explainable but but uh, the why is obvious the why is hooray it's rained tell us a tiny bit more about the what what else have you seen there in the wetlands maybe talk about frogs fish you tell me look at, down there in the low bidgey um it's a very very special part of the murray darling basin there's really large expanses of tall spike rush for example which has been grazed out or otherwise lost from altered flooding regimes in other parts a lot of other parts of the murray darling basin but out there there's thousands of hectares of it there's huge phragmites and kumbungi reed beds and those gorgeous old river red gums that is where a lot of the the water birds are nesting in the rushes and reeds and, and in the red gums. And my work recently there has been with the New South Wales Department of Planning, Industry and Environment, also working with the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder. So these wetlands have been receiving environmental water. So they've primed, you know, they're ready to boom when you get a, a huge natural flood like this. And... Um, one of the key species that I've been chasing, Ant, is the Australasian bittern, which is the, that, uh, the bunion bird. It is. Why is it called the bunion bird? It's a water bird. Yes, and it eats, um, it eats frogs and fish, and there's plenty of those in the low Bidgee, including some tiny little threatened fish like rainbow fish and little carp gudgeons. And the southern bell frog, that sounds a bit like a motorbike warming up, and uh, they're all out there. They're all part of the system. And these sneaky bunyip birds, the Australasian bitterns, take a um, take a lot of special effort to uh, to find. We've been slogging it through the spike rush and in the water in kayaks. And um, we're hooked up with a really helpful yabby fisherman. And we've been getting into places that people apparently haven't been in for twenty years. So. It's been a real privilege. That is such a fantastic story, and I absolutely loved hearing that. And I have to say, like, I've learnt more about the Australian, like, wildlife and, like, ecology since, like, chatting with you than I have, I swear to God, in 28 years (laughs) of my life so far. And it's always such a pleasure to hear about. So thank you very much for that. Uh, But, you know, so the wetlands are in flood, as Matt was saying, and that is fantastic news. But... I'm wondering, I guess, we're generally a pretty dry country. So is this a brief glimmer of hope? And what happens to the health of the Murray-Darling Basin when the flow slows down to a trickle again or into complete drought, I guess? That, that's, a, that's, a great, that's a great question. And um, look, I, I was, that's exactly really why I was so, so keen to, to speak uh, to Matt Herring. Because, you know, Matt Herring this week, uh, when he caught my attention, as he said in the intro, he, he was just floating on a boat down through um, Yanga National Park on wetlands that, that, as he's just described there in the first part of that interview, are absolutely booming at the moment. Um, but Matt works the river. Um, he actually has a consultancy, as he said in the intro. Uh, it is a biodiversity research, education and conservation consultancy. It's called Murray Wildlife. Basically what he does is he goes around and talks to farmers. He's been to almost a 1,000 farms, and he talks to them about how to make their properties sustainable so that if you're growing uh, whatever, 
pasture for dairy, rice, whatever they grow along the Murray and Murrumbidgee and all, all, all the great rivers, uh, he is the guy to talk to about how to make your property also uh, terrific for wildlife as well, so that you're giving as well as producing. Let's take a listen to the second half of the interview. I think um, it's unfortunate that the Murray-Darling Basin is often portrayed as being destroyed because there still are these highly significant and valuable systems remaining and um, there's a lot we can do to make them even better. And that is a terrific, and that's great to hear by the way, but that's a terrific a segue over to your work. Now, you you proudly list that you've worked with 950 plus farms. I'm sure you're going to hit the thousand mark soon. Uh, you can raise the bat 10 times like they do in cricket for making 100. Um, they, and you've worked with farmers on establishing sort of sound ecological practices on their own land so that they can farm, I understand, in a better way. And they can also set aside, for example, making their dams friendly for for uh, water birds by by planting a few reeds or doing other things like that. Long story short, you help make farming in the Murray-Darling Basin more ecologically friendly. Is that is that about a good summary? Yeah, absolutely. I, I um, I've got a real kick out of doing this for the past couple of decades and I think it's a huge part of the way forward in preventing extinctions and, and having uh, more sustainable landscapes and um, yeah I, lo I love working alongside farmers I think they're some of the people that are most in touch with nature as custodians and um, most willing to do more to protect it. There are two schools of thought on that. Some people see farmers as environmental vandals and some see them as custodians, to use the word you just said. Is there some resistance? Do these people come to you or do you go to them? Uh, it's a bit of both. And look, there certainly are people out there that couldn't care less and it's all about profit. Um, but more and more people are, um, you know, producing food and, and fibre and also wanting to conserve the environment at the same time. And this, this space is, it's a really exciting one. Like if you think of water, big issue in the Murray-Darling Basin, it's very polarised at present. You've got water for uh, agriculture and the economy, and then you've got water for the environment. But there, there are potential um, areas in the middle ground where we can sort of maximise mutual benefits. And so there's, there's some really interesting things that uh, myself and others are, are looking at going forward. All right, before we go, give me one example. Tell me about a farm that maybe didn't look so good, looked a bit barren, wasn't really uh, in keeping with the way that, that the riverine landscape should look, and maybe talk about that farm and, and how you helped change it. Uh, look, uh, the best example I think I can give is... Um, is with rice farming, which is down in the Riverina, uh, in you know, in the southern part of the Murray-Darling Basin. A lot of people are really opposed to rice and cotton um, because it uses a lot of water. But what what is often misunderstood is that the 
irrigators are allocated a certain amount of water each year and whether they grow almonds or pasture for dairy, you know, it doesn't really matter. They'll use the same amount of water. So they, they grow what makes money. And I'm fortunate, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that rice is still one of those because it creates a wetland habitat. Uh, it's like a swamp. And some of our most threatened water birds are in there and frogs, um, the painted snipe, the bittern, the bell frogs. And so by working alongside rice farmers, we can tweak their agronomy and, you know, the way they grow the crop to incorporate the, the habitat requirements of these birds and, uh, and frogs and other wildlife. So that's, that's one example of how you can produce food and conserve biodiversity at the same time. I never thought of that, and I have to slap the table. I'm so thrilled by that piece of knowledge, Matt, that, that of course, a rice paddy, if we call it that here, is, is a wetland, and yes. you can use that wetland. I mean, it, it's a functioning wetland while the rice is growing, and I'm presuming you say you can tweak it slightly. You mean perhaps you can plant some appropriate reeds or something at, at, at various ends of the, of, of the rice crop. Or, or other native plants that, that more suit the wildlife? I assume you mean something like that. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things. And, and some of the others are, um, you know, avoiding herbicide use on banks. So you have these nice grassy banks providing extra habitat. Um, we can manage adjacent refuges next to, the, next to the, uh, the rice field so that there's habitat after harvest time. And also get the ponding period right the commencement of, of, of the flooding um, so that it suits the, the requirements for, for breeding. And, and the rice farmers are on board with this. I mean, they've, they've seen all the birds and heard all the frogs in their crops for decades. And so they, they appreciate the recognition, but also the ability to, um, uh, you know, to seize that opportunity and basically, you know, take help take the lead on, on some of these uh, threatened species recoveries. I absolutely loved what he was saying there because I think that in Australia we're often very we're sold the narrative that to participate in agriculture is to be the enemy of the local environment and I just don't think that's true most of the time like farmers have a great love for the wildlife that surrounds them and the environments that they occupy and that is the most incredible story about the way that you can actually adapt to you know be the friend of the natural wildlife and the animals around. And, and that's exactly what I hope, you know, I hoped you and others would, would get out of that infio, Elfie. Um, and I hope that's what everyone gets out of the Green Canaries' existence going forward in, in, in 2022 because we, we know there's a lot of doom and gloom in the environmental sphere. We know there are some bad stories. We know there are water rorts and all sorts of terrible things going on in the Murray-Darling Darling Basin, to use that area. We know that 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 too much water sucked out of the, the river for the wrong purposes does not do the environment any favours. But we also know that we can mitigate and we can solve these problems. And Matt Herring is just your example of a guy who's out there 
are helping people make a living and helping people make a difference. That is exactly what we're all about. And so I wanted to sort of end 2021 and and look to 2022 as you're listening to this podcast, perhaps it's in the new year already, and have that as a bit of a blueprint for the vibe and the content (laughs) that the Green Canary wants to bring. I absolutely love that, Anne. Thank you so much for that interview. It was brilliant. And thank you, audience, for tuning into the Green Canary. Uh, We will be taking a short break. I believe we'll be off for one or two weeks, depending on how sleepy we are. (laughs) But uh, before we head off today, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording today. I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, as well as extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Elfie. Bye. Bye.